Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Passion. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, It's Harvest Time. Miriam Martin tells of an experience she had when she was growing up. She said that when she was young, she remembers her two young brothers fighting with each other in a playful way. And and one of them said to the other, I'm going to eat you. And her mother overheard it and said, oh, we don't eat people. There are some people who do eat people and we call them cannibals. And someone should tell them about Jesus. To which one of the brothers answered, well, they'd better do it over the phone. You know, it's simple fact that bringing the gospel to a people is risky and a dangerous business. The gospel goes forward often at the cost of human blood. Is that, do you think, by accident or by design? And today we're going to be examining how it is that the good news of Jesus goes forward and the role we play in that. As we're preparing ourselves for the Easter season, we've been in John 12 to 14, and I call this message, It's Harvest Time. A little while you'll see what I mean by that. So I'm reading John 12, 20 to 26. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, I want you to notice what sets off our text. A group of Greeks have approached Philip asking if they might see Jesus. It's especially fascinating for all sorts of reasons. I mean, first of all, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. He's been hailed as the long-awaited Messiah. The crowds were convinced he was the king of Israel, and as such, he would break the nations in pieces as a potter breaks a defective pot on on his floor. Jerusalem was waiting for Jesus to take up his throne and declare war on the Gentiles. And, And here are these Greeks, and they ask if they can make an appointment with Jesus. That alone is fascinating. Second thing that catches my attention is that these Greeks were in Jerusalem at the Passover, and the natural question is to ask what they were doing there. I mean, you have to know, first of all, that there was a provision in the law that allowed the Gentiles to celebrate the Passover. Exodus 12, 48 says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. You know, in Jewish law at the time of Jesus, there there was a process whereby Gentiles could convert to Judaism and therefore become a part of Israel. If they were males, they had to be circumcised. Then they had to commit to cutting off all contact with any other family member or Gentile friends. They were never to contact them again. And for a great many Gentiles, that was going too far. But they still loved and feared the God of Israel, and there was a name for them, and technically, they were called God-fearers. They came to Jerusalem because they were denied participation in the feast, 
They simply celebrated in the court of Gentiles. And it's a court that you might remember had been given over to the buyers and sellers of temple goods. So it was a court that is noisy. You wouldn't even hear yourself think, never mind, pray there. It's really amazing when you think about it. I know all sorts of people who suffer one offense in a local church never show up again, never see God again. But these people can't be offended enough. They have an intense heart hunger for the God of Israel. So please understand these Greeks. They hear of the triumphant ride on Palm Sunday, and then they hear that this man will crush them. There's hardly any place for them in the temple. And by then, Jesus most likely had already driven out the money changers, and and that must have intrigued these Greeks. So they find Philip, probably because Philip is a Greek name, even though he is a Jew. And when Jesus hears this, listen to what he says. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what does he mean? I mean, those of us who know what Jesus is going to be crucified might find this statement a bit startling. You know, we might think that he would be saying that, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified or, or even to be crushed and humiliated or even to be murdered. You know, we might think he should say the hour of his glorification would come when he's raised from the dead, but he's not saying that. The hour has come for me to be glorified. In other words, the hour has come for my splendor, my majesty, my greatness to be now demonstrated. And right now with the coming of these Greeks, I'm doing exactly that. So why does he say that? See, I think the answer is that the coming of the Greeks demonstrates that Jesus knows that the harvest is starting to come in. He had already then begun the process of drawing people from every nation. He might think back to John chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd, not, not two flocks, one flock, one flock made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It is in this that we can see that the glory afforded to him by the people who cheered him on in his triumphal entry really had a vision that was way too small. They had envisioned the Messiah reigning over the Jews, and Jesus envisioned himself ruling over the world. You know, the next thing Jesus saw was that he was beginning to break down the wall of hostility between people groups. And I borrow that phrase from the book of Ephesians. You know, there Paul describes the impenetrable barrier between Jew and Gentile, which he says has been torn down in Christ. You know, in fact, anyone who knows the story of how the early church grew will tell you it grew initially from the hunger of the God-fearers. Having been kept out of a covenant with Israel, they learned that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had opened a door that let the Gentiles into full fellowship with Israel without requiring them to be circumcised or to cut off contact from their families. And indeed, this is the story of what Christ is still doing. In the most unlikely places, the gospel is going forward. There is a harvest of human souls coming in from nations and languages and cultures so different from each other that, you know, we can scarce comprehend it. And yet, this is what God is doing. It is harvest time. But to say that is only the beginning of the story. We must also know that how the harvest is going to be brought in. So note verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that's the image. Now, I know the image comes from farming, and you know most of us urban types need to work on that a bit. 
But for those of you who live and work on farms, you know what it means. But if you've never seen it before, it would seem astonishing. A farmer will take seed, seed that he might have sold on the open market for money, but instead he takes that very seed and and puts it in a cedar and buries it in the ground over a vast tract of land. And if you didn't know what was going to happen, you'd conclude that it was a horrible waste. Because once he's done that, he's never going to get that seed back. The, The seed is effectively lost. He'll never find it again. He can't eat it or sell it. He's destroyed it. But of course, every farmer knows what we all know. Unless he lets the grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will remain alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will give him a hundredfold return. And that's what Jesus knew as well. In horror, his disciples watched his arrest and then his sham trial with the ridicule and then the mocking. In fact, Mark tells us that the Roman soldiers received Jesus with blows. In other words, they were still beating him when they delivered him up. They watch the rejection of Jesus by the crowds in Jerusalem, and then they watch as he's finally crucified and his lifeless, beaten body was hanging on a cross. What did they think? You know, the conversation that the risen Jesus had with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, it's a telling description of what they thought. Luke chapter 24, verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's in the past tense. Once he'd fallen into the earth, their hopes had fallen as well. Just like seed planted, which can never be recovered. So the death of Jesus was the devastation of their dreams. But says Jesus, that's how the harvest is brought in. His death is the only way that we could be forgiven. His death is as necessary as a seed being sown into the ground. But that's not the only way the harvest is brought in. If it dies, it bears much fruit. It's not just that Christ's death provided access to God. Christ's death draws people to God. You know, his cross is a magnet. It's that irresistible attraction to many that says, God loves me that much. Who could have known where the world would find itself today? Well, we know nothing is beyond God, beginning to end. We find ourselves in challenging days, unprecedented for most. We're experiencing uncertainty, more questions, I suppose, than answers. But take courage, people of God. He is faithful. In response to our global circumstances, the next five weeks, beginning March 22nd, Dr. Neufeld will be releasing a special video series each Sunday morning. This series has been designed to provide weekly Bible teaching, particularly for those who may not be able to currently worship with their church family. In this series, Dr. Neufeld will provide unique messages of hope found in Christ. Join us this Sunday morning at backtothebible.ca as we search God's Word for today. And if you miss a message, no worries. Prior messages will be available online or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Most of you know the Easter story of a Jesus who dies so that a great harvest of men and women from the earth could be brought in. But interestingly enough, Jesus is not content with that. So Jesus now moves from the necessity of his death to the necessity of our death. 
His death not only is what theologians call a forensic death, that is, a legal necessity in order that we're forgiven, but his death is also exemplary. In other words, it's a pattern for us. Look again at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So please understand the context. Context is harvest, harvesting countless souls for the gospel of Jesus. This says Jesus demands losing your life. Let me try to illustrate that point by telling the story of R.J. Thomas. He was one of the first missionaries to Korea back in 1865. Thomas had a great heart for the people of Korea. In 1865, the opportunity he had been waiting for in a lifetime finally came along. An American ship, the SS General Sherman, was going to steam up the Taedong River to the capital of Pyongyang in hopes of luring the Koreans into trade. And Thomas bought a berth on that ship, hoping to meet some scholars in Pyongyang who, who spoke Chinese and took as many scriptures with him as he could possibly stash on board with him. But terrible things happened along the way. In a port on the way to the capital, some of General Sherman's crew killed three Korean men in a barroom brawl. And when they reached Pyongyang, the rumors had grown. These foreigners had come to kill. There's nothing to do now but to turn the ship around and head back up the river. Except they got stuck in a sandbank. The Koreans launched an attack on the ship and it caught fire and the crew had to abandon ship and wait on shore. The Koreans were ready for them. The fight ensued and the Sherman's crew was killed. R.J. Thomas also waded to the shore. And before he could speak and explain that he had come not as a soldier, but as an emissary of Jesus, he was hit on the head with a club and he died on the shore, never having had a chance to share the gospel with one single Korean. The seed fell into the earth and died. But Thomas Killer noticed that, that this dead man did not have a cutlass in his hand. But in fact, he had nothing but books in his arms. And he wondered if he had killed a good man. And he picked up the books and he took them home. But he was illiterate. He dried off the paper and in honor of the man who had come on shore with books, he papered the outside of the house with the pages of the books. He went out to the fields to work and when he came back, he found a bunch of scholars earnestly reading his walls. And one of these scholars became a Christian by reading a gospel portion plastered onto that wall. And his son made the first translation of the New Testament into Korean a mere 25 years later. But R.J. Thomas never lived to see that. You know, as far as he knew, as he came off that ship, it was all a horrible mistake. But he was a seed that fell to the ground. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You know, it's a wonderful story, but it's got to be a unique story. Ah, But that's where you're wrong. One of the greatest historians on missions was the Anglican bishop Stephen Neal. Neil said that the suffering of Christians was one of the primary reasons why the church grew so rapidly in the first place. You know, in describing the persecution and torture and, and killing of believers, listen to what he says. He says, in the earlier records, what we find is calm, dignified, decorous behavior, cool courage in the face of torment, courtesy toward enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering as the way appointed by the Lord to lead to his heavenly kingdom. There are a number of well-authenticated cases of conversion of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of Christians. There must have been far more who received impressions that in the course of time would have turned into living faith, end quote. Let me put it candidly. 
The roadway whereby the gospel came to you is a roadway smeared with blood. First the blood of your Savior, and then the blood of the missionaries and the evangelists. But it's right here that we must see something vital. Jesus' death brought about the life of others. Our death, according to this passage, brings about life for ourselves. Let me bring this home to a point of application. If it is harvest time, if, if right now there's a harvest of souls going on, and, and if you're going to participate in it, it will mean you must be willing with your Savior to fall to the ground and die. You must sacrifice everything that would keep you from, from bearing much fruit. What is it going to take for some of us to see it? Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? So what practically does that mean? Well, let me lay it out. First of all, let's talk about money. I mean, one of the reasons some people don't tithe, it's because they don't think they're going to have enough. So they seek to save their lives. Next, let's talk about being involved in ministry, or let's talk about small groups, or one of the reasons we're not involved in a lot of things is because we don't have time. Or let's talk about sharing our faith. I mean, one of the reasons we're not doing it is we've never learned how, and we don't want the hassle even if we knew. And if the truth must be told, we're spending all our energy on loving and preserving and nurturing our own life. Perhaps if you're honest, it's you. You have never made sacrifices for the gospel. You have to surrender your own life in order to live. Let me take it one step further. Look again at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I have a very important question for you. Are you ready? Where is Jesus? I mean, if Jesus said, where I am, there will be my servant also, then if you want to know where the servant is, well, he or she is right beside his or her master doing his or her master's bidding. So where's Jesus? You know, someone's going to say, I don't get it. Uh, What do you mean, where is Jesus? Okay, let me help you. When Jesus was on earth, where was he? Answer, he was seeking that which was lost. Remember the shepherd who left the 99 sheep and went after the one that was lost? That's the explanation of why Jesus was seeking people. He was pursuing the lost. So let me ask it again. Where is Jesus? Right now he's pursuing the lost. Right now he's building his church so that the church would fulfill the Great Commission. Right now, in spite of intense persecution, a greater percentage of people claim faith in Christ than at any other time in human history. Why? Because there is a global hunger for the living God. That's where Jesus is. Now, where are you? You know, first we notice we must die in order to live. Now we've noticed we must be where our Savior is. And then we come to verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I want to read a poem that was written by Charles Ross Weed. And the poem is entitled Christ and Alexander. And it's a comparison of Jesus with Alexander the Great, the man who conquered the then known world with swiftness and military brilliance. And what Weed gave us in his poem was was the idea that Alexander the Great and Jesus Christ died at the same age, 33. Now, I don't know whether that's exactly right, whether or not Jesus was exactly 33. I suspect that's not right. But still, the poem makes an interesting point of comparison. Let me read it. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. 
The Greek made all men slaves, the Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all, and all to him is given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. <laughs> it gives some sober thought. You want to gain all things. And then you need to forfeit your life and follow your master's example. Right now, ask yourself, are you living for self or are you losing yourself for Christ? How do you know? Well, my question is simple. Where's your money going? Where's your time going? What are you dreaming all about? Listen to verse 25 again. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Every one of us is gambling our lives on something, just like a gambler that plays at a roulette wheel. We're putting all of our assets against one number, against something that we think is going to pay off in life. I'm going to ask you a question. Would you join those who trust Jesus and put all your assets on his death and on his resurrection, banking that his promises are true? For if they are, and they surely are, then you've just made the best bet in your life. Lose your life, and you will find it for eternity. John, your story today about R.J. Thomas, I mean, such a remarkable story, such a remarkable person. It had, I'm sure, so many aspirations about bringing so many people to know Christ. And yet, you know, some people might look at that story and in the end, he dies and say, oh, it, it was all for naught. But it wasn't all for naught at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure at the moment, uh, you know, it seems like it's all for naught. You know, God, I've said this many times, but Ben, you know, God plays the long game so very well. I mean, he has plans, and, you know, our job is not to simply say, I mean, how am I going to make this work, but rather I will be faithful to the Lord. I mean, my Lord and Savior went to the cross and heard the mockery of his enemies as he died on the cross, but in so dying, the world could be saved for the first time. And when we give our lives away, I mean, we might say to ourselves, what a waste. I mean, it, that was a really dumb thing to do. However, Anything that's done, giving our lives away, identifying with Jesus in his death, is a marvelous, marvelous gift. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, May God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? Your gifts make this ministry possible. To learn more, 
call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.